Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 14. Black Raiments. So last time we discussed the fall of Suluk Khan, the end of the father of the fight. Despite no longer being widely remembered, Suluk led what was undoubtedly the most successful resistance against the armies of Islam with the exception of the Byzantine Empire. And in response to Suluk Khan, the Umayyads were forced to move massive numbers of troops from the Caliphate's central lands in Syria and Iraq to the eastern frontier, destabilizing the whole region with devastating consequences for the Caliphate. We already saw the beginning of this with Al-Harith's rebellion. But today we are going to see the ultimate fruit borne by the struggle with the father of the fight, the very fall of the Umayyad Caliphate itself in the Abbasid Revolution, led by the enigmatic figure of Abu Muslim. But before we get into the details of the end of Al-Harith and the start of Abu Muslim's revolution, we need to step back and look at both how the East was destabilized and why it was ripe for revolution. So to begin, Remember that as we discussed all the way back in episodes 9 and 10, the Muslim conquests were not really wars to spread the faith by the sword. Indeed, quite the opposite. The early Muslim conquerors did not want converts to the faith. Converts would be entitled to political rights within the state and a portion of the proceeds of the conquests. Additionally, there was the Bayt al-Mal created by Umar, which was essentially the first welfare state in the world, collecting taxes and distributing charity to the poor of the Muslim community. If mass conversion were allowed, it would bankrupt the state, as the caliphate would not be able to afford the benefits all of these new Muslims would be entitled to. And though this is debated, it's also very possible that Muhammad saw his revelation primarily as monotheism for the Arabs not necessarily as the universal religion it later became. The conquered peoples therefore mostly kept their own religion and lived apart from their new overlords. The caliphate took advantage of certain of Muhammad's revelations regarding respect and tolerance for the peoples of the book to recognize the legitimacy of the pre-Islamic faiths of the conquered. Initially, Muhammad's revelation about the peoples of the book was really limited to Jews and Christians the peoples who shared the faith in the God of Abraham with the Muslims. They came about as Muhammad had to deal with ruling over Jews and Christians and entitled these people to keep their faith under Muslim protection. They didn't have to serve in the armies in exchange for the payment of a head tax called the jizya. The early Muslim community, having grown up in close contact with the Roman world, was very comfortable dealing with Christians and Jews. As the caliphate expanded eastwards, it came into contact with other religions, Zoroastrians, Yazidis, Manichaeans, Buddhists, and even Hindus, and the system then evolved to include these people also as people of the book, with a little hand-waving on the part of the caliphs and the Islamic scholars. The Muslim conquerors relied on the elites of these peoples to staff the civil service and the bureaucracy of the lands that they conquered and they relied on the peasants and merchants to produce the agricultural products and goods that funded the state. The caliphate, therefore, had no interest in allowing these people to become Muslims, which would then deprive the state of tax revenue. Indeed, early Muslim sources are full of anecdotes of ragtag militias claiming that they had been converted, only to be turned back by the Umayyad officials, told they weren't really Muslims, and ordered back to the fields, markets, and estates that they had come from. But while conversion to Islam by non-Arabs was not encouraged, it slowly began to happen anyway. The religion did not stay as merely monotheism for the Arabs, but instead began to shift into something more universal. While there were certainly true believers among the non-Arabs, the increase in conversions was at least partially in response to the realization of how permanent the Arab conquests actually were. And partially, this was due to the desire of some to escape the higher taxes paid by non-Muslims. It was also really only in the reign of Abd al-Malik that the Umayyad state really began publicly promoting and displaying religion. 
Prior to this, we have no record of Islamic inscriptions on coins, documents, buildings, or elsewhere. Though we can't be sure, this is likely because early Muslims really saw the faith as for the conquerors only and didn't feel the need to display it, and also because they did not want to antagonize their new subjects. But during Abd al-Malik's reign, the state became more and more outwardly religious, which also no doubt contributed to the desire to convert among many of the non-Arab peoples. Additionally, the stunning success of the Arab armies convinced many of the correctness of the messenger's faith. It's a bit hard for us to really understand this, but in this time, everything was seen as having a divine component or reason. If God had allowed these stunning conquests to take place, then there must have been a reason for it. In Byzantium and the Christian West, this was largely seen as God punishing the Christians for their sins, which ultimately would go on to have a big impact on the development of Christian theology. But for many people, their being conquered was not proof that they had sinned but that their religion was nonetheless correct, but rather proof that the messenger's faith was true, and their gods hadn't protected them because they didn't actually exist. And this drove a large number of non-Arab converts. These non-Arab converts came to be called Mawali, and they've popped up a couple of times over the past couple episodes. Now, the Umayyad Caliphate really only wanted to allow a limited number of useful and talented people to convert. And in the early years, conversion into Islam by a non-Arab required a Muslim to sponsor you. This was a reworking of Arab customs of adoption, whereby outsiders could join another tribe. Usually, this conversion happened among troops who had allied with the Muslims in their conquests. After victory on the field, a Muslim commander would in essence sponsor the conversion to the faith of those allied troops who had helped gain victory. Similar, in some ways, to Roman consuls making their allied troops citizens of Rome for service on the battlefield. The other main route was governors, allowing the conversion of skillful bureaucrats and advisors, people who could help staff the newly expanded Umayyad civil administration and be useful to the caliphate. Additionally, on occasion, commanders and governors on the frontiers would defy the will of the court in Damascus and discreetly send missionaries out to the peoples they bordered. The commander's real goal was conquest, and they reasoned that local converts among their targets would make conquest of these people easier. But that said, in the early years, it appears that these missionaries only had limited success. But however they came into the faith, Eventually, these converts would then go on to sponsor their own converts, leading to an acceleration of conversions into the religion beginning in the early 700s. Now, a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that when Kutaiba had started his invasions of Central Asia in the early 700s, there really weren't that many Mawali. But in the following 40 years, mass conversion had resulted in a substantial number of Mawali throughout the caliphate, but especially in the east, where large numbers of Iranic and Turkic peoples had begun to convert. This acceleration of conversion posed a serious problem to the Umayyads. The state could not afford to provide all converts with the same rights Muslims were traditionally entitled to, that is, exemption from the taxes that non-Muslims had to pay and the provision of benefits to the new Muslims. From a purely fiscal perspective, each conversion both reduced the revenue to the state and increased its obligations. So the Umayyads had two choices, either forcefully stop conversion or reduce the benefits Muslims were entitled to. After trying to stop the flow of converts and failing to do so, the Umayyads were forced, ultimately, to choose the latter. They began to assess new taxes on Muslims, including a new land tax on all land and a poll tax roughly equivalent to the jizya tax paid by non-Muslims. And then they began to reduce the benefits paid out to the Ummah. But this then created a whole new set of problems, some of which have already popped up on the podcast. And at the same time, the Umayyads continued to do their best to impose the jizya and other taxes on the Mawali. Despite their conversion, the state was determined to treat them as non-Muslims for fiscal purposes. Remember how in episode 12, Al-Junaid ordered the officials to just go and collect the old taxes from the non-Arab Mawali converts like they used to? and then also just go and levy the land tax on both non-Arab and Arab alike? Well, that was part of a pattern of Umayyad rule. 
Fundamentally, the Umayyads did not want to erase the distinction between Arab and non-Arab. They continued to see the Arabs as being fundamentally better or more real Muslims than the non-Arabs, and therefore entitled to more. And this was actually part of an even bigger problem for the Umayyads. The Caliphate essentially became the domain of a tight-knit clique of Syrian Arabs who looked down on everyone else. And increasingly, conflict at the court in Damascus revolved around the labyrinthine webs of loyalty and conflict among these Syrian Arabs and the various tribes supported by the factions within this clique. The Empire of Faith became ruled by a narrow clique of inward-looking elites, becoming increasingly blind to the world outside the palaces of Damascus and the changes rocking the empire that they ruled. All of this led to increasing tensions between the Umayyad authorities and the new converts. Now, it's important to remember that this process of increasing conversion by non-Arabs was not unique to the eastern frontier. It was happening everywhere across the Caliphate by the mid-8th century. It was just much, much more extreme on the eastern frontier. The Umayyad attempt to stop conversions into the new faith had been particularly unsuccessful in this region. Some historians posit that due to the relatively loose attachment of the locals to Zoroastrianism, the Aaronic peoples here were particularly open to the new faith. But I think it's actually far more likely that the proximate cause is that the governors of Khorasan, facing the might of Suluk Khan and the Turgesh, and short on numbers required to withstand them, had been particularly open to allowing conversions into the faith. They had even sent many missionaries out on both sides of the Amudarya to gain Mawali converts. They hoped that these Mawali would help shore up their defenses against the Turks and the Sogdian rebels. Additionally, due to the patterns of Arab migration and settlement, the bad feeling between the Umayyads and the Mawali led into and was part of a broader, deep web of tension between the Umayyads and the local Arab settler population in the east the Khorasani Arabs or the frontier Arabs. And there were a couple of real reasons why the local Arab settlers in the east were particularly hostile to the Umayyads and open to Al-Harith's message. For one thing, the sheer number of Arab settlers in the very far east of the Caliphate was just very high. Very few Arabs had settled on the Iranian plateau itself, but many, many more had passed through the central lands of Iran and settled on the northeastern frontier. Modern historians estimate that by the eve of the Abbasid Revolution, there were probably north of 50,000 Arabs living in the region. There was therefore a large community of Arab settlers here, and they were disconnected from the other large population of Arab settlers in Iraq, Syria, and Egypt, separated by the immense distance of Iran. They therefore largely lived in their own little frontier world, not deeply connected to the Arabs at the center of the caliphate. And remember how in earlier episodes I said that with a couple of exceptions, the Arabs initially tended to live in their own cities in the lands that they conquered? That is, instead of moving into the cities of the people that they conquered, they tended to establish garrison cities and colonies, like Basra and Kufa in Iraq and Fustat in Egypt. Well, one of those exceptions was here in the east. Here, in the lands of Khorasan and Balkh, most of the Arabs came to settle in the already established cities and towns of the region. They therefore became closer both to the non-Muslims and the new converts in these lands. These non-Arabs were their friends, neighbors, business partners, and critically, family members. See, the Arab settlers in the east were predominantly men, and mostly men of poorer rank from more obscure clans. Very few women came this far east initially. Therefore, the initial Arab settlers mostly ended up marrying local women, Persians, Sogdians, Turks, and others. These women, therefore, passed on their language to their children, as their fathers passed on their language and their identity as an Arab. So within a generation, there came to be a large population of Muslim Arabs in the East who were actually part of both cultures, who spoke both Arabic and Persian or Sogdian or Turkish natively were at home in both worlds. Think all the way back to when we discussed the frontier culture of northern China and the rise of the Tang. How peoples on the frontier developed something like an immigrant culture, part of both worlds, but a little bit separate from both as well. 
while a similar situation was arising again on the borders of the Caliphate, this time by people who were both culturally Arab Muslims and culturally Sogdian, Persian, or Turkish. Furthermore, if you remember all the way back to episode 9 and 10, the Umayyads and their supporters were essentially the rich and powerful pre-Islamic elites. Those decadent elites who Muhammad had defeated in his revolution, but who after his death had reasserted their control over the new faith's empire. The original Arab converts to Muhammad's faith were the poor and the dispossessed, and they by and large did not support the Umayyads during the fitna. The poorer Arabs instead tended to gravitate to Ali, or later to Ibn al-Zubayr. And when many of these poorer Arabs moved to the east to settle on the fringes of the empire, they brought their distaste for the Umayyads with them. Therefore, most of these eastern settlers did not support the Umayyads. There was a large Shia minority, but even in the majority that wasn't ride or die for the line of Ali, almost all rejected the Umayyads as corrupt, decadent, and unworthy to hold the caliphate. Men who were descended from the pagan oppressors of the early Muslim community, the murderers of Hussein, almost apostates. So when the Umayyads were forced to send tens of thousands of new reinforcements from Syria and Iraq to shore up the east after the defeats inflicted on them by Suluk Khan, these reinforcements came into conflict quickly with the existing Khorasani Arabs and the local Mawali. These people, these frontier Arabs and Mawali converts were incensed by the demands of the newcomers for land, money, and influence. In other words, the fear that they would be displaced. But they were also infuriated by, for lack of a better word, the newcomers' cultural and ideological differences. These Arabs from the Middle East, from Iraq and Syria and Arabia, were not of the frontier. They did not have Sogdian or Persian or Turkish mothers. They did not have Mawali friends and family members. These newcomers followed the old Umayyad line, that Arab Muslims were superior to non-Arab Muslims who maybe weren't even Muslims at all. And maybe worst of all, they were supporters of a caliphate whose leaders descended from the messenger's enemies and those who had murdered his family. Then the court in Damascus further inflamed tensions in the region. In order to strengthen the frontier against the Turks and to forestall an attack by Suluk Khan, the caliph ordered that the Khorasani Arab settlers and their descendants be dispersed across the frontier along the Amudarya River. This fed into fears among these Khorasani Arabs and the Mawali that the Umayyads were attempting to break them up and destroy them, replace them with these Middle Eastern Arabs, the ones who considered themselves to be superior and to be the real Muslims, and who were rabid supporters of the corrupt, nearly apostate Umayyads. Then, in order to raise the funds needed to oppose Suluk Khan, the governors of Khorasan were forced to levy increasing taxes and confiscations across the region so that they would be prepared and provisioned for when the father of the fight inevitably returned from the east. These impositions were bitterly resented by the existing population, Arab, Mawali, and non-Muslim alike. So all of these tensions came together to create a bitter brew of resentment on the frontier. The Umayyad state came to be hated by the Arab settlers and the Mawali alike. And remember that here, the line between Arab and Mawali was actually very blurry due to high rates of intermarriage. And these tensions fueled the revolt of al-Harith and then his successor, Abu Muslim. As I said when I introduced him last time, al-Harith taught that all it took to be a Muslim was belief. You didn't have to speak Arabic, you didn't need to be sponsored into the religion, you didn't even need to have any great knowledge of the Quran or the tenets of Islam. All you needed to do was recite the Shahada and believe in its words. That there is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. So these frontier lands, where most Arabs were not really totally Arab, where Muslims lived alongside non-Muslims, where the nominally Arab Muslims were related to and lived next to their Mawali neighbors, where conversion and even missionary activity was common, where the Umayyads were detested, these were fertile grounds for his message. Indeed, I think it's important to remember that by the time of al-Harith's preaching, being an Arab had become something more like a legal status rather than an actual ethnic identity in many ways. As a hypothetical situation, let's say you and your cousin are both of mixed ancestry and both bilingual, speakers of both Sogdian and Arabic. 
but your cousin is considered an Arab by the state because he has Arab patrilineal descent, and you are a Mawali because you don't. And now you've got that rich Syrian Umayyad governor down the road saying that you've got to pay more in taxes because of that, and also that you're not really a Muslim anyway like your cousin. And this guy is an Umayyad, descendants of the persecutors of the faith when it was young, and murderers of the messenger's family, basically a borderline apostate, telling you that you're not a real Muslim, despite the fact that you believe and you go to mosque every Friday while he's probably off drinking with his friends in their fancy little palace. And now on top of that, he's also trying to get you and your cousin to leave town and set up along the river to the north so that you'll be arrow fodder for the next Turkish invasion. And now you've got these Syrian Arab troops showing up, moving into town, treating you like garbage, and looking down on you. Needless to say, both you and your cousin find this whole situation humiliating and infuriating. And then Al-Harith swings by town, and what he's saying makes a lot of sense. So it's easy to see how Al-Harith really started picking up a following in these eastern lands. Then, when the new troops showed up in the region, their first major military action was not to oppose the father of the fight. They didn't even actually fight the Turks. Instead, they fought Al-Harith, and his armies composed of Khorasani Arabs and Mawali. Now, this was obviously strategically necessary. There's no way the Umayyads could tolerate revolt. But the war prosecuted by Assad as governor was exceptionally brutal, and most of the victims were Khorasani Arabs and Mawali. And they didn't just kill rebels, they laid waste to the land. Think about modern military invasions in the same region of the world. The U.S. invasion of Afghanistan didn't just anger the Taliban and their supporters. It inflamed the whole country, because the destruction affected everyone, and everyone knew someone who died. So the war with al-Harith really ratcheted up the tension with the locals, even those who had not joined the revolt. Now, as we discussed in past episodes, al-Harith's rebellion was very successful up until it wasn't. After being initially defeated, he had taken up with Suluk Khan directly, and even commanded troops under Suluk at the Battle of Karistan. But then Suluk was defeated at Karistan. Al-Harith didn't give up after the fall of Suluk. He appears to have taken up residence in modern-day Tashkent, licking his wounds and waiting to restart his rebellion. And importantly, the movement that he began did not end. And throughout the eastern lands of the Caliphate, his message continued to reverberate. So what happened in Khorasan after the defeat of Suluk at the Battle of Karistan in 737? Well, as I'm sure you expected, the Turgesh Khanate predictably fell into civil war, and it was no longer able to maintain control over Central Asia. I mean, civil wars among claimants to the throne in a power vacuum are essentially a Turkish tradition due to the messy rules of Turkish succession where any member of the ruling family has a claim to the throne. So as the Turgesh Khanate fell into civil war, it retreated from Sogdiana, and a power vacuum quickly arose. In the power vacuum, Assad, the Arab commander at Kharistan and the governor of Khorasan quickly asserted Arab domination over the small principalities on both sides of the Amu Darya. He sent a small contingent to defeat a rebellious lord in Balkh who had been one of Suluk's allies. But after this victory, Assad fell ill and died in February of 738, a mere two months after his victory at Kharistan. The task of reconsolidating Umayyad control over Central Asia instead fell to his successor that guy I briefly mentioned last time, the governor of Balkh who had been driven out by al-Harith at the height of his rebellion, Nasr ibn Sayyar. Nasr ibn Sayyar was born in 663, probably in Iraq, as a member of a fairly prominent Arab tribe with good connections to the Umayyads. He was therefore a very old man when he became governor of Khorasan, nearly 75 years old. And a symptom of the navel-gazing at the court in Damascus, Nasser was appointed not because of his skill or merits, but because he was a member of a well-connected clan. But despite his age and the circumstances of his appointment, his mind remained as sharp as ever, and he would prove to be an exceptionally shrewd and talented governor. In spite of themselves, the Damascus clique had actually made a very canny pick here. Nasser had spent his whole life in the service of the Umayyads, most of it in the eastern frontier region. As a young man, he had served under Qutayba in the initial conquest of Central Asia. He rose through the ranks and distinguished himself in the wars against Suluk. 
he had refused to take part in the campaign that resulted in the Day of Thirst, claiming that it was a very bad idea, and he had been one of the few Arab commanders to serve with distinction at the Battle of the Defile when Suluk annihilated virtually the whole Arab army. He then served as governor of Balkh, where he returned after Al-Harith briefly drove him out. Now he was appointed as governor of Khorasan, the lord of the east. He quickly moved across the river, eager to capitalize on the power vacuum opened up by the fall of Suluk. With the father of the fight gone, the Arabs faced no real resistance. Nasser's forces quickly reconquered Tokharistan, Samarkand, Khwarezm, and all of the areas near the river. In 740 he pushed further. Though the sources are a bit confused, it appears likely that he fought Kulchor, Suluk's successor to a draw, in a battle around this time to secure his reconquest from further Turkish interference. He then attempted to take Tashkent in order to get his hands on Al-Harith, but he was unsuccessful. Al-Harith was instead driven out of the city pursuant to a peace treaty and moved on to the city of Otrar, a city on the steppes, even further to the north, one that had not fallen even to Kutaiba back in the days when the Umayyads swept all before them in Central Asia. By 743, Arab rule had been restored across Central Asia, and indeed pushed farther with the conquest of the Fergana Valley, the valley where twenty years earlier the Arab armies had been humiliated on the Day of Thirst. With the authority of the Umayyad Caliphate now unquestioned throughout Transoxiana, Nasser set out to entrench Arab rule. But he did this not through violent suppression, but paradoxically through tolerance. Nasser had been in the East for decades at this point, really most of his long life, and he had seen the failures of Arab policy firsthand. He had seen how first Al-Harashi's harshness, his crucifixion of his enemies, and his high taxes had directly caused hatred and fury among the population, which had then been exploited by Suluk. He saw how Al-Junaid's heavy taxation of the Mawali and refusal to grant them the same tax rights as Arab Muslims had driven them into revolt and again into the arms of Suluk. He had seen, firsthand, city after city, town after town, join the Turks and rise up to overthrow the Arabs. He had seen the Khorasani Arabs, the Mawali, and the non-Muslims alike join with al-Harith to try to overthrow the state. He knew just how fragile Umayyad rule really was, and he believed that the only way to hold these territories was to reform the system. He wanted to allow the locals, Arab, Mawali, and non-Muslim alike, to more or less live as they wished. The first thing he did was tackle the thorny question of taxation. He set forth that the land tax, the kharaj, would apply to all peoples indiscriminately, whether non-Muslim, Mawali, or Arab. He then stipulated that the jizya tax would also be imposed on the non-Muslims in lieu of military service, but crucially, the Mawali would not be forced to continue to pay it. If you'll recall, this was a real sticking point and trigger for revolt under Al-Junaid's rule, the state in essence requiring the Mawali to continue to pay the jizya after conversion. Nasser also made another huge concession to the Mawali. He abandoned the Umayyad practice of checking for circumcision to confirm a conversion. Obviously, this was a very popular move among the Mawali. Nasser also reached out to the non-Muslims on both sides of the Amudarya. He allowed and may have even sponsored the rebuilding and repairs of Buddhist monasteries and Zoroastrian fire temples. The archaeological record shows that the Sogdian and Persian elites began building large palaces and even Zoroastrian fire temples and Buddhist stupas and monasteries during this period. Large murals in the city of Panjikant from this period have also been discovered replete with depictions of Sogdian pagan gods and Zoroastrian fire altars, which really demonstrates the tolerance of this new regime instituted by Nasser. In 741, after a round of negotiation, Nasser struck a deal with the Sogdian princes and nobility that abolished the penalties for apostasy, including the death penalty. This allowed those Sogdians who had converted to Islam for cynical reasons and now wanted out with a way to return to their old religion. Nasser then made an even bigger concession to the local peoples, Arab, Mawali, and non-Muslim alike. Over the objections of the caliph and the court in Damascus, 
Nasser forgave all public debts owed to the state, critically including past tax debts from the old tax system. He also declared a debt holiday and wiped out all existing private debts. Nasser intended to wipe the slate clean and start over with his new settlement, seeing this as the only way to forestall revolt. But at the same time, Nasser also tried to enforce the caliphate's writ in other ways. He promulgated an order requiring all official documents of the Sogdian city-states under Arab hegemony to be written in the Arabic language, an act that helped Arabic begin to establish itself as a lingua franca alongside Persian among the educated classes in Central Asia. And there are some indications in the archaeological evidence that he required the Sogdian city-states to tear down their walls so that they would not be able to withstand the Arab armies if it came to that. Nasser hoped that this settlement would be acceptable to all sides, and that the tensions simmering under the surface on the eastern frontier would be calmed. And indeed, Nasser's reforms were successful. They were welcomed across the east. One Persian noble in Balkh recorded that the Arabs were excellent overlords, and have done nothing deserving of blame. But unfortunately for Nasser, this new regime was destined to fail. Now, had he remained in power, and had his program had time to work, it is entirely possible that the situation in Central Asia would have resolved itself, and the tensions would have abated, instead of leading to a great revolution. At the same as historians of revolutions will tell you, it is often when things are on the up and up after a period of hardship that revolutions break out, when the formerly downtrodden have had a taste of something better and hunger for more, and have the space and the liberty to organize. When the tinder and kindling have been building for years and you start adding oxygen into the mix, all it takes is a spark. And the spark for the fire that would come to burn down the Umayyad Caliphate was carried to Khorasan in February 743 by a breathless messenger carrying shocking news. The Caliph, Hisham ibn Abd al-Malik, had unexpectedly dropped dead at the age of 52. Immediately, this sparked a political crisis. Hisham had tried to appoint his son Maslama as his successor, but there were other contenders within the Umayyad house, namely Yazid II's son Walid. This kicked off a bitter struggle between the various tribes and camps of the Damascus clique, with the factions falling into civil war. Thus began the Third Fitna. But even more important than struggles within the Umayyad house were the contenders from outside. The Umayyad victory in the Second Fitna had never been quite accepted by many. The former enemies of Muhammad, the former Meccan elite, taking over the faith. There were, of course, the Shia, absolutely dedicated to ensuring that the line of Ali received its due, as well as a certain group called the Abbasids, promoting a line descended from Muhammad's uncle Abbas, who incidentally probably never actually converted to Islam himself. And these claims from outside the Umayyad house ultimately were far more dangerous. As we said earlier, the Umayyad Caliphate had become dominated by a very small clique of Syrian Arab families. Conflict within this group and each of the faction's webs of patronage and loyalty to various Arab tribes dominated Umayyad politics. But as this small clique turned progressively inwards into their own alliances and labyrinthine conflicts, they came to ignore what was happening outside the palaces of Damascus, where, as we have discussed in this episode, the tensions were roiling under the surface of the caliphate, particularly in the east. Now, the situation in the east was kind of a microcosm of this Umayyad dysfunction. After Hisham's death, Nasser had been confirmed in his post by Walid, but then the twists and turns in the cloistered palaces of Damascus resulted in Yazid III coming to power, undermining Nasser's position. But then this Yazid died, and the third fitna erupted with force inside the Umayyad house. Syria, Iraq, and Arabia turned into a war zone between the factions. Nasser recognized one of the claimants, Marwan, as caliph. But this was not very popular in Khorasan, which further undermined Nasser's position in the east. 
As Nasser's position weakened, Al-Harith returned. Now was the time for the revolution to succeed. But then Al-Harith, Nasser, and a basically non-ideological rebel named Al-Kirmani got into a huge three-way fight among themselves, each allying with one and then the other. I'm not going to go into the details, but this fight would end in the ruin of all of them. Essentially, Al-Kirmani and Al-Harith teamed up and managed to drive Nasser from his capital at Marf, before turning on each other, whereupon Al-Harith was killed in a minor skirmish with Al-Kirmani's forces in the year 746. Which to me, seems like a very anticlimactic way to go for such an influential and interesting guy. Nasser composed the following poem upon the death of Al-Harith. Now bringer of humiliation upon his folk, may removal and distance be yours in death. Your evil fortune made all of Mudar to fall, and diminished the reputation of your people. I find the passing of Al-Harith kind of sad. Here was a guy whose ideas have had an enormous impact on Islam. Even though he wasn't the only one thinking them, he did more than almost anyone else before him to make those ideas a reality. The idea that Islam is a truly universal religion, not the property of one ethnic group, was truly revolutionary at the time and has now completely won out. Islam is today the universal religion that Al-Harith wanted it to be. And Al-Harith played a key role in this story. The revolution he started would outlive him, and it would ultimately succeed under the leadership of his successor. And I think it's a bit of a pity that Al-Harith not only didn't get to see the victory, but that his role in all of this is so poorly remembered today. For his part, after defeating Al-Harith, Nasser became embroiled in the fight with Al-Kirmani, that non-ideological rebel. He devoted all of his resources to defeating this rebellion, blind to the fact that Al-Harith's revolutionary movement had endured beyond the death of its founder. In this way, he himself was personally a symbol of the broader Umayyad dysfunction at the time, focused inwards on petty disputes, blind to the massive firestorm approaching from the outside. So as the Umayyad clan was obsessively focused inwards, with all of the factions engaged in their bickering and alliance-making and scheming, as the fitna raged on in the central lands of the caliphate, as Nasser tangled with this foe in the east, thus becoming steadily weakened, the great fire that would destroy them all had been lit in the east. Because the Abbasids, based in Iraq, decided to send to the east a missionary to proselytize and advance their claim. And the man they picked was the enigmatic Abu Muslim, who would pick up where Al-Harith had left off and lead the revolutionary movement that Al-Harith had started to victory. We know almost nothing about Abu Muslim. Not how old he was, who his family was, where he was born, or even his real name. Abu Muslim is merely the nom de guerre that he took when he rode east. While earlier scholars believe that he was an Arab, modern scholarship has pretty conclusively proven that he was, in all likelihood, a Persian born in Marf, the capital of Khorasan. He had likely been enslaved as a youth, and then served the Abbasid household in Iraq, growing up in the Abbasid stronghold of Kufa, before converting to Islam. Whatever the course of his life, Abu Muslim, like Al-Harith before him, came to believe that there was no distinction between Arab and non-Arab Muslims. Like Al-Harith, he said that all that mattered was belief. As long as you believed in the Shahada, you were a Muslim. No need to learn Arabic, no need to even be well acquainted with Islamic practices or law. And Abu Muslim went further. He claimed that nationality itself was actually not even a meaningful concept. Instead, the Ummah, the community of believers, was all that mattered. Not only that Arab and non-Arab Muslims were equally Muslim, but in fact, all that mattered is that they were Muslims. Their actual ethnicities were completely irrelevant. As he said, I am a man from among the Muslims, and I do not trace my descent to any one group to the exclusion of another. My only ancestry is Islam. And as the third fitna raged in Syria and the heartlands of the Caliphate, and as Nasser's position continued to weaken in the east, 
Abu Muslim took control of the remnants of Al-Harith's movement. He began to preach on the eastern frontier, spreading his message. And like we said earlier, this message was uniquely suited to the eastern lands of the Caliphate. Soon Khorasani Arabs and Iranian Saudin and Turkish Mawali began rallying to him. By 747, one year after Al-Harith's death, Abu Muslim had won over a large part of the Khorasani Arab population. Al-Harith's death was in fact the proximate cause of his success, as Abu Muslim was able to consolidate his control over the movement and present himself as the man to pick up the torch and carry it forward. He essentially took the movement that Al-Harith had begun and brought it to new heights. He was shrewdly able to bring on side the local Zoroastrian elite as well by organizing his small forces to suppress a local Zoroastrian sect that was detested by both the Zoroastrian elites and the Khorasani Arabs. He also began to promote himself as a protector of the sizable Christian population and began to quickly gain their support. Abu Muslim was also welcoming to heterodox Muslims, partially for ideological reasons, but also for shrewd strategic reasons. This included welcoming Shia partisans into his movement, who, as we said before, were numerous in the East, and tolerating the heterodox spiritual practices that had grown up on the Eastern frontier, as Islam had interacted with Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Manichaeanism, and even Tengriism and Hinduism. Remember that Abu Muslim's whole deal is that all it takes to be a Muslim is to believe in the Shahada, that there is no God but God, and Muhammad is the Messenger of God. So as long as you signed on to that, he was happy to have you on board, especially if you brought soldiers or money with you. Abu Muslim himself seems to have picked up some heterodox ideas of his own. There are fleeting references in the sources to him preaching about reincarnation and the transmigration of souls, ideas he probably got from Buddhism and Hinduism. But Abu Muslim was not just seeking converts, he was seeking soldiers. Abu Muslim kept as the symbol of the movement the flag chosen by his predecessor Al-Harith, the black banners of the early Muslims under Muhammad. The perfect symbol to show that he and his men represented the original Muslims and the Umayyads, nothing more than the decadent elite that Muhammad had overthrown. He then further ordered that his new fighting forces clad themselves in the black clothing of the early Muslim common soldiers. It is from this that his army would take its name, the Men of the Black Raiments. In 747, Abu Muslim felt strong enough to challenge the increasingly tottering Nasr, who had fallen into a bitter struggle with al-Kirmani. Abu Muslim dispatched to him a letter, saying in part, As for what follows, truly God, blessed be his names, and exalted be his mention, reproaches certain folk in the Quran, saying, They swore the most binding oaths by God, that if a warner came to them, they would be more guided than any community. But when a warner came, it only increased them in aversion, waxing arrogant in the land, and plotting evil. But evil plots encompass only those who make them. Do they expect anything by the way of the ancients? You will find no changing in God's way, nor any evading of the way of God. Al-Tabari reports Nasr's response. Nasr was much astonished at the letter, and that Abu Muslim had shown himself. He closed one eye and pondered long, and he said, this letter has but one answer. And so Nasr finally got around to doing what he should have done earlier, and ordered his men to prepare for an assault on Abu Muslim. But the Umayyad force, weakened by the desperate struggles with al-Harith and al-Kirmani, and the needs of the various factions in Damascus for manpower in the fitna, was just not up to top fighting form anymore. Indeed, Nasr and al-Kirmani's forces had been engaged in vicious fighting outside the walls of Marv itself when they heard that Abu Muslim was approaching, and that they thus needed to put aside their differences to face this great enemy. After getting a truce from al-Kirmani, Nasr assembled his forces and put them under his best general. But the men in the black raiments were just too powerful, and Nasr's army too weakened and exhausted. The Umayyads were defeated and the general captured in a short campaign, and Nasr's best troops were lost. So not only did Nasr fail to defeat Abu Muslim's army, but his troops were themselves defeated in the field. Then the petty Umayyad internal conflicts reared their head again to finish off Nasr. 
When he finally and belatedly awoke to the danger of Abu Muslim, he had tried to get al-Kirmani on his side. But then one of his men killed al-Kirmani. The conflict between the two sides erupted again, leaving Abu Muslim the supreme power in the region. And so, in early 748, Abu Muslim marched on Marf, the capital of Khorasan, and likely the city of his birth. He drove Nasr out of Marf, and indeed out of Khorasan itself. Reportedly, he recited the following verse from the Quran when he entered into the city in triumph. And he entered into the city at a time when its people were careless, and found there two men fighting, one was of his own party, and the other was one of his enemies. Nasr ended up on the run, chased out of the east and pursued by an Abbasid force sent by Abu Muslim. He was caught by the Abbasids in February 748 in the city of Nishapur in Iran. He was 82 years old and was promptly executed. Before he died, Nasr reportedly wrote the following poem to his caliph, Marwan, warning him of the fire that was coming to destroy the Umayyads. I see among the ashes the flash of live coals, and dream that they will have a kindling. A fire may be kindled with two sticks, and a war begun with a few words. I say in astonishment, would that I knew, is the clan of Umayyah awake or sleeping? Fortunately for Abu Musa and the Abbasids, the clan of Umayyah was asleep. Marwan and the other Umayyad claimants continued their wars against each other in the center of the empire, utterly blind to the fire raging in the east. Abu Muslim was now the lord of Khorasan, the master of the frontier. It's clear that by now his vision had expanded beyond Khorasan, however, beyond his mission given to him by his Abbasid patrons back in Iraq. As the Abbasid forces who had caught and executed Nasr continued to campaign across Iran, Abu Muslim now turned his eyes north of the Amudarya to secure his position as the lord of the entirety of the east. Because it was only after this that he could turn around and march his forces back to the center, where the third fitna still raged. As with other Muslim conquerors from the south that we have covered, this started with Bukhara. When Nasr fell from power and was driven from Marv, the city of Bukhara rebelled. The Arab settlers living in Bukhara feared that Abu Muslim would tear up the very favorable deal that Nasr had reached with Bukhara's Sogdian king. As the Arabs of Bukhara rose in rebellion, the local Sogdian Mawali converts opposed them. Abu Muslim sided with the Sogdians against the Arabs and brutally put down the Arab revolt in Bukhara. This was in fact highly symbolic of Abu Muslim as a whole the integration and indeed the championing of non-Arabs. He saw this as critical to pacifying and controlling Transoxiana. As he preached and as he demonstrated that he would treat both Arabs and non-Arabs fairly, Sogdian converts and local Arab settlers continued to flock to his black banners. The numbers of the men in the black raiments grew. However, like other Muslim commanders crossing the river, Abu Muslim was also forced to contend with the Turks. Now, as we will discuss in more detail next time, the Turgesh Khanate was mired in civil war to the north and locked into a power struggle with the Karluks, the Uyghurs, and the Tang. They were therefore not able to invade Central Asia at all. But even after Suluk's fall, Central Asia was still home to large numbers of Turks, smaller tribes, and disparate bands living on the steppes and deserts between the cities. There are indications in some sources that in 748 and 749, Abu Muslim launched attacks against several of these smaller groups of Turks to break any hold they might still have over their settled neighbors. But for sure, we also know that it was at this time that his message began spreading to the Turks, and relatively large numbers of Turks came to join his armies. Over these two years, thousands of Turks joined the men of the Black Raiments. Indeed, Abu Muslim was rapidly bringing in all sorts of non-Arabs into his forces. While the men in the black raiment started off as a largely Khorasani Arab force, by 750, it's estimated that two-thirds of their number were non-Arabs. Abu Muslim had succeeded in recruiting Sogdians, Persians, and crucially, Turks to his cause. He had created a truly frontier army, composed of Arab and Iranian infantry, but centered around a massive contingent of Turkish steppe cavalry. 
Remember how back in episode 8 we discussed how the Tang dynasty arose by taking the Turkish frontier military culture and using it to conquer the center of the Chinese empire? Well, a similar thing is about to happen here. This combined arms force was a reflection of the cosmopolitan nature of the frontier, and it was vastly, vastly superior to the forces that the Umayyads could muster, particularly because of its Turkish cavalry. It also makes Abu Muslim something of a military innovator, the first Muslim commander to use Turkish military might. And this legacy would continue long into the future. Indeed, we can say that the practice of using Turkish troops that the coming Abbasid Caliphate will be so famous for really began here, at its birth. With his troops now largely non-Arab, Abu Muslim's program became increasingly about his version of Islam, that all Muslims were equal, whether Arab or not, and that all it took to be a Muslim was belief. You know, it's interesting to note that with an army that was overwhelmingly not Arab, it's entirely conceivable that Abu Muslim could have had the goal of just getting rid of Islam, that he could have framed his struggle as a struggle of liberation from the religion of the conquerors. But he didn't. In everything, he framed his struggle instead as a return to the true teachings of Islam, to the true message of the Prophet, and against the corrupt and decadent Umayyads. Abu Muslim was not leading a rebellion against Islam, but instead a rebellion in the name of Islam. His non-Arab troops were not fighting for freedom from the caliphate, but for what they felt was their rightful place at the table. And this shows just how far Muhammad's faith had come from being just monotheism for the Arabs, a religion for the conquerors. Abu Muslim and his men were fighting for a universal religion, and for a cosmopolitan Islamic culture that melded together all of the traditions of the peoples of this new faith. While Abu Muslim had been consolidating Abbasid control over the Far East, the Abbasid army that had defeated Nasser and Nishapur had been on a tear, conquering Rai, Isfahan, and Nahavand in 748 and early 749. So by March 749, all of Iran was in their hands, and Abu Muslim stood supreme in Iran and the far eastern lands of the Caliphate. His new army of faith, the men of the black raiments, was the uncontested military power a military power animated by their conviction in their beliefs and burning with resentment against the Umayyads. It was also by now the largest Abbasid force in the Caliphate, and the top remaining anti-Umayyad force. And then, Abu Muslim received an urgent message from Iraq. He was being summoned by his Abbasid sponsors to march with all haste to come to their aid. By 749, Marwan had largely won the internal Umayyad civil war and was looking to clean house, to deal with the remaining enemies and rivals, and these included the Abbasids. Sitting in their homeland of Iraq, the Abbasid leadership was stunned at the success of Abu Muslim and how well their eastern conquests had worked. With all of the eastern lands now in their hands, in early 750, the head of the Abbasid house, Abu al-Abbas al-Safa, proclaimed himself caliph in the Iraqi city of Kufa. Marwan, of course, could not tolerate a rival caliph, so he assembled a massive army of 120,000 men to deal with these Abbasid upstarts, whereupon Abu al-Abbas sent word to his top general with the best Abbasid army on the very eastern fringe of the caliphate that he needed his aid urgently. The time to conquer the center had come, and Abu Muslim heeded the call. With great haste, he assembled the men of the Black Raymonds in an army 40,000 strong and began marching west with all speed. On January 16, 750, Abu Muslim and his army encountered Marwan and the Umayyad forces near the Great Zab River in northern Iraq, a tributary of the mighty River Tigris. With 120,000 troops, the Umayyad forces vastly outnumbered the men of the Black Raymonds. But despite their numerical superiority, the Umayyad force was internally divided, being composed of Kharajites, Shia, and Sunni forces with only lukewarm loyalty to the Umayyad cause. It was also essentially an entirely Arab force, which knew how to fight in the way of the Arabs. The men of the Black Raymonds, by contrast, were united in their vision and zeal, and contained both Arab and Iranian infantry complemented by a massive Turkish steppe cavalry force. The Umayyad forces managed to throw up a pontoon bridge and get most of their forces over the river and towards the banks, 
as the men of the black raiments began arriving in an attempt to stop the crossing. But the initial Umayyad assault to defend the makeshift bridge was successful, and the initial wave of the Abbasid forces were pushed back with many captured. Reportedly, when the Umayyads captured the soldiers and discovered that they were a mix of poor Arab settlers, Persians, Sogdians, and Turks, one of the Umayyad commanders exclaimed, God curse Abu Muslim for fighting us with people such as this. Really just the pinnacle of misplaced Umayyad bigotry and sneering condescension. But the Abbasid troops, the men of the black raiments, were able to form up into a defensive line as the Umayyad army finally got across the river. Surveying the much, much smaller force in front of him, and confident in victory having defeated the Abbasids in the first encounter, Marwan decided to press his advantage and ordered a full cavalry charge. As the Arab heavy cavalry assembled and bore down upon the line of the Abbasid infantry, Abu Muslim ordered the men to quickly form a spear wall. According to Al-Tapari, he said, order the troops to dismount. At this the cry went out, to the ground. The troops dismounted and extended their lances while crouched. They then engaged the enemy. The Umayyad cavalry crashed into the spear wall, utterly breaking them. Virtually the whole of the Umayyad cavalry was destroyed. Marwan was stunned and horrified at seeing his great cavalry charge fail, as disorder and panic began to spread throughout the Umayyad ranks. The Umayyad forces began to rout and turn to flee, but the river was behind them. In disbelief at how quickly the battle had turned, Marwan fled for his life. With a remnant of his personal cavalry, he made it back over the pontoon bridge and ordered it severed to prevent the men of the Black Raymonds from following him back across. As the last Umayyad caliph turned to run, the Abbasid Turkish cavalry suddenly launched a devastating charge, driving the Umayyad forces into the river. According to Al-Tabari, more were drowned that day than fled in battle. The Battle of the Great Zab effectively ended Umayyad hopes of retaining the caliphate. As the fleeing Marwan finally straggled back to Damascus, the eyes of the Umayyads were finally open to what was happening beyond their cloistered palaces. But Marwan knew that even Damascus, the great capital of the Umayyads, was not safe for him. The Abbasid troops, led by the terrifying Abu Muslim, could not be far behind, so he packed up his family and fled to Egypt. And indeed, the Abbasid advance was coming, and it was unstoppable. As Abu Muslim rode through Iraq and Syria, every town, village, and city that he encountered submitted and offered loyalty to the new caliph, his master, Abu al-Abbas. Damascus fell with barely a fight in April, a mere three months after the Battle of the Great Zab. In August, Marwan and his family were tracked down in a small village in Egypt and executed. Except for a small remnant that would hang on in Spain and create the fabled civilization of Al-Andalus, the Umayyad Caliphate was over. A new caliphate, the Abbasid Caliphate, had been born. But unlike the Umayyads, the Abbasids intended to rule not from Syria, but from Iraq. They had conquered the caliphate from the east, and the center of political gravity shifted east in due course. In 762, the great city of Baghdad would be founded just to the north of the old Sassanid capital of Tesaphon in Iraq. And it would be in Baghdad that the so-called Golden Age of Islam would come into being, the true creation and fruition of classical, cosmopolitan Islamic civilization. But Abu Muslim did not have a chance to savor his victory, because just as he had defeated the Umayyads and conquered the caliphate for his master, Abu al-Abbas, urgent messengers arrived from the east, from his home base in Khorasan and Balkh, carrying shocking news. After decades of inaction, decades of being locked in struggle with the Second Turkish Khanate, the Karluks, the Uyghurs, and other Turkic peoples of the steppes, decades of internal political turmoil, decades of seeing its great protectorate general to pacify the West upstaged by the Arabs, the mighty Tang Empire had armed itself and was on the march again. A massive Tang army was heading straight for the Arab possessions in Central Asia, determined to drive the Muslims from what it considered to be its rightful domains. The time had come for the empire to strike back. Strike back.